The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Wycliffe had a vision. And I would encourage you as we look at Wycliffe's life to See if you can envision what you don't think is possible. So, he said, looking intently at his friend, you do not believe fundamental change and growth in human character is possible. Yet you live in a world so transformed by the gospel already as to be entirely unrecognizable by any 1st century or even 13th century Christian. Let me just point out one small change that has transformed the world in a mere 350 years. And so we sat together over glasses of Joel Gott and talked about John Wycliffe late into the night, an English revolutionary so obscure, even his name can be spelled a dozen different ways today. It is so irrelevant to get him right. Wycliffe was best known for his Bible translation that within 150 years, was rendered archaic because of the linguistic transformation of England coming into its own as a separate, independent European power. Though his name and what he did is believed utterly irrelevant to our modern world, all we see around us today was made possible by his vision, which, if you had been with him back then, was hopelessly utopian in his own day. Just like you say mine is. So what I want you to do is I want you to join Wycliffe for a minute as he looked out on his word world. Take a second, get a glass of whatever you would like to relax with, get something to munch on, some cheese, cracker, whatever, hamburger. And as you look at Wycliffe's world with them, take a second. Remember that he, unlike you, knew nothing of what was going to happen in the next 600 years. To him and to the people of his day, everything was the way things always were, always would be. It's, it's not that they ignored the soon-to-be reality of a printing press. It's that such a reality was unthinkable. It is not so much that it is foolish to imagine that something could change the world as we know it so radically as to erase every limit, boundary, and possibility that today is taken for granted. It is that it's almost impossible to live life in that unrealized, almost unthinkable reality. If it even, if, if even the thought of it hasn't happened yet, like a printing press, though, though we dream from time to time about utopias or about how things ought to be in the family or the church or the state, what the world should be, we don't let dreams like that get in the way of reality. I mean, we absolutely have to live from day to day. And so we get caught up in the moment and we continue. 
For Wycliffe, there were two indomitable powers, the government of the state and the government of the church of Rome. Both were, without apology, authoritarian and absolutist, and didn't think any other option was possible, nor did the people. Both had experienced relative success or failure based on the strength and authority of the man whose hand was on the helm or around their throat. Both were thoroughly autocratic and both fully confident that any form of government without that strong man at the helm would lead to hopeless instability, slaughter, starvation, and death. Though much maligned, Machiavelli actually put this conviction of human government down in print a hundred years after Wycliffe, and today, actually, though you think I'm a hopeless utopian, you're arguing that Machiavelli was right. Machiavelli argued in The Prince that the ruthlessly firm autocratic rule was necessary to avoid the far greater horror of civil wars and social chaos, the squalor, starvation, rape, and riot that would ultimately result without that firm external legal power and control of our lives. From the least to the greatest, Machiavelli's views have tended to provide the conviction, that rash, the rationale to defend the need for a central power of government sufficient to control you, to collectivize you, to regulate you, centrally plan you, and so protect you from those who would harm you, and that it's impossible to think of any other way of organizing ourselves, any other principle. The world had never known anything other than some version of central government to control the people, for their own good, of course. In the 400 years following Wycliffe, however, both church and state would take a radical transforming step directly due to what Wycliffe's ministry was, which in the following centuries grew beyond anything even Wycliffe could have imagined possible. Though in effect, an impact was precisely what Wycliffe predicted in his preface to his Bible translation. There were two political power structures in Europe, the noble and the priestly. They were financed by a growing, though still statistically insignificant, group of merchants. Under them lived the other 95% of the people. These serfs and peasants were illiterate, living only short, brutish, 40 short, brutish years. Uh, the repeatable words, they had other words which aren't repeatable in polite society, used to describe them were common, ignorant, unwashed, starving, rude, filthy, foul, ugly, beshitten, ignoble, superstitious, and I could go on, pick, pick any synonym of those, those were the words used to describe them. The general attitude of the nobles and the priests towards them matched the words they used to describe them. They were considered so devoid of any wholesome character, charm, or potential for anything that even Karl Marx, the self-styled champion of the working classes, 400 years later, wrote a letter to his patron Engels telling him that these peasants are entirely unfit to lead a revolution of the workers or even to live in a land ruled by the proletariat, which is why he said Russia would not be a good place to organize the people's revolution. They were so devoid of potential that Marx's only solution was to, and I quote, liquidate them. In English, better for everyone to simply kill them. While slaughtering them as a class was certainly not a thought shared by the intellectual, social, religious, political, and economic elite of the 1350s, and probably horrifies you, the conviction that serfs and peasants are hopelessly worthless, ignorant, filthy, crude, and useless, except for the most menial of tasks, 
was their inescapable conclusion, which if you don't share it, simply means that you cannot picture serfs as they were. You only picture them as the romantic imagination of the movies you have seen falsely portrays peasants and serfs. Indeed, you have never met a serf, and you will never meet a serf. That despised 95% of society, which, which Marx said, you just need to kill them. There's nothing you can do with them. When he said liquidate them, they were about 80% of the society of his day. And his solution was to kill them. But that despised 95% of society in, in Wycliffe's day have all been transformed as a result of Wycliffe's visions, not Marx's, into not only the people you know today and have grown up with, but you yourself are most likely a descendant of those miserable brutish people. There are no serfs and peasants in the West. They've been transformed by the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, precisely as Wycliffe said that they would be. Wycliffe was one of the intellectual elites in, the, in England of his day, England's leading scholar and vocal critic. He was sponsored by the most powerful political figure in England at the time, John of Gaunt, the first Duke of Lancaster, the power behind the Lancaster takeover of the British throne. His theological works describe what any reformer a hundred years later would easily recognize as standard Reformation thinking. Except the Reformation was not even dreamt of while he was writing the, preaching those things. It is true that his political writings thoroughly supported the monolithic power of the state. He provided theological reasons for the state to dismantle the monstrosity the church had become in his day, and he urged them to keep its preachers and prelates beggars. That's, that's a quote. He realized he could not take on both tyrannical powers at once. So between the two, he made the decision to choose the church to refer, reform as the most important, knowing that in time, if God's people in the church could reform, could transform their relationship to the world, then the structural transformation of the state would inevitably follow. He was right. The question Wycliffe was faced with then the question Wycliffe faced was not then, nor is it now, how will I change my world? The first question to be addressed in his day, or our day, is, why change the world at all? Indeed, can I change it? Isn't the world today the way it always has been, and the way it always will be, until Jesus comes back and he can rule it himself? Everyone, at whatever period of human history they live in, cannot help but believe in their bones that, that all is what it is, and it is as we know it today. The more perceptive recognize the fact that the world as we know it is in a precarious balance. It's easy to make it worse, but it's whimsically impossible, it's utopian, to think that you could fundamentally improve it. After all, the human condition is what it is. There's nothing new under the sun. Above all, it's almost impossible to think of the future in terms substantially different from the present. How would you imagine it? This is why people in general will applaud you for being a visionary. You know, they'll, they'll read things, they'll listen to things like this, and they'll say, Foreman, that's, well, what a visionary. That's why people in general will applaud you. They'll applaud you for stimulating entertainment. <laughs> that was pretty good, Foreman. That's all right, Wycliffe. And they will applaud you for changes you think important. They will agree. Things are a mess and need a changing, and those are great ideas. But they will seldom follow you, no matter what the Bible says. If you get serious, they will seriously oppose you. This is why so many saints are martyred. Not so much because they disagree with you that what you say is true or better. 
yeah, they, everybody agrees that a utopian is a better world situation to be in than what we have. They're not even saying you're wrong. It's simply they believe that the balance we now live is impossible in their mind to actually change and even try would bring disaster, blasphemy, and every evil thing. Just to give you as an example, every election in my lifetime, though I have thought many better options could be available than whatever it was we were voting for, we were pushed to vote, in, in, in both sides, pushed to vote for their man or their woman based on the fact that we can't afford to let this slip away, now is the moment, now is the time, and we've gone from crisis to crisis to crisis. You see, the balance is precarious. You can't think about how it should be. You can only think about what small issues lie before you now. To even try to change things, in their mind, would actually bring disaster, blasphemy, and every evil thing. Oh my goodness, Hillary will be in charge instead of Trump, so you must vote for Trump. They will find any and every way to obstruct you in the name of God and decency. By the way, I'm not advocating voting for either one of them. That's an illustration that life is always a crisis. It's in a balance. And though you may have something that they say, yep, that seems better. In the end, they're going to say, but we've got to be realistic. We're not going to change. Things aren't going to get better. And they'll find any and every way to obstruct you in the name of God and decency if you just go about trying to create change. Any alternative to the world is better, uh, to, to, to the world as we know it, is truly and literally unthinkable to most people. Fundamental change never comes from persuading those functionally invested in the world as it is. It comes from actually changing something in that world which keeps things the way they are. Consider horses and buggies exchanged for cars. Think of the, all the things that were changed simply because we have cars. Telephones replaced letters and visits. Cell phones replaced televisions, telephones, movies, and intimate exchanges. You can do it all over the internet. It's even called sexting. Internet replaces conversations, fellowship, research, and libraries. In fact, the little phone that I'm talking to you on right now is literally a window onto anything any human being has ever done and taken a picture of. And that is a lot of really cool stuff, and it's also a lot of perversion. You can't imagine something that they haven't taken a picture of and you can't dial it up. Internet replaces conversations, fellowship, research, and libraries, and so on. In fact, the Internet has put pornography out of business. In Wycliffe's case, he said, this is what Wycliffe said, let scripture change the heart and the Holy Spirit will change the world itself. That's what his belief was. It is this way with forms of governments. What changed England and continental uh, forms of government, that's Europe, was not the theoreticians, though they had their place, you know, the John Locks of this world. What changed Europe was a transformation of the people themselves who lived in Europe, who were governed, that 95% who were serfs and peasants in Wycliffe's day. They were changed at every level from top to bottom. So radical the change that the English commoner, that filthy, ragged, short-lived, brutish, ignorant peasant, became a highly educated, literate Reformation warrior in every part of his culture, eventually leading it 
to a reckoning that took the head off of not merely King Charles, but in the next 200 years, off of the very concept of monarchy itself as a viable form of government. And even in England, where the king is, is or the queen in this case, is the spiritual head of everything, in reality, they have no power left in the monarchy. In America, there isn't even the pretense of a monarchy, nor in France, nor many other European countries. And so we come to Wycliffe. He wrote theoretical books and tracts about what the church and state should be like. Church and state theory, you know, books about what the 3% who could actually read should believe about itself and about their world in order to change it. Books like Gary North would write, or books like Rush Dooney would write, or books like John Calvin would write, and they had their impact. This is what the things that the 3% who could actually read should believe about itself and about their world in order to change it. Today, even if translated, they would make heavy going. They were not the agent of change. These treatises did not change England and in time Europe and the world. Wycliffe himself, it is clear from reading him, did not know what exactly that change would be. But he did know that because the Bible is true, because the Holy Spirit is real, then these together in a man's heart would make that person and the world unrecognizable to anyone who lived in his day if they could only read God's word with eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. He proposed a simple act, translate the Bible into the common tongue, that is the vulgar, the language actually spoken by the English people. If, they, if, if he had been able to post his intent on Facebook, you would reply something like, LOL, take ideas in a language that no one could understand, Greek and Hebrew, or read and translate them into another language that not only can no one read, no one wants to read. Listen, the people who could read weren't speaking average everyday English. They were speaking a very high level of English and French. And who wants to talk like an ignorant, unwashed commoner? Did this vision grip him from his early days? Did it occur to him late in life when he looked at the futility of what he had written and the intellectual battles that he had fought? Now, the answer would be a romantic, but it's irrelevant. The fact is, late in his life, he set aside the other things he was doing and began work on the first English Bible, justifying that work by the transformation possible by the Holy Spirit speaking in the word to the heart and life of each Christian. By the way, the serfs were Christian. They were professing faith in Christ. They were ministered to by the church. If Wycliffe needed confirmation that he was on the right track, it came in the level of opposition and hatred worse than he had ever known. Were it not for John of Gaunt, the first Duke of Lancaster, he would have been burnt, probably I should say Lancaster. Lancaster is what you'd call him in the hinterlands of America. By the first Duke of, Duke of Lancaster, he would have been burned by the church for pure heresy and the diabolical idea that the serf can be changed. Everyone knows the human heart is as it always is. Nothing can be same there. The belief that the serf can be transformed, that the serf would do anything but become an ungovernable mob if they ever had their hands on the holy words of God himself. Blasphemous. So deeply seated was their hatred and fear that, that though they could not burn him alive at the stake back in 1380, they did dig up his grave about a hundred years later and burn his anathematized bones. But it was too late. The Holy Spirit and the Scripture were out of their bag, just as they are going to escape from the bag that you, right now, my friend, 
are holding them in. The Spirit and the Bride say come. The church leaders hated Wycliffe because, like us, they could only see the future in terms of the world they lived in. They could not grasp the fact that a transformed serf is no longer a serf at all. In fact, a serf transformed by the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Word of God planted in his heart, is a threat to all power systems that are designed to work with only the dull and empty masses, such as Marx's lumpen proletariat, which could only be managed by an elite class of nobles and bureaucrats, or the average pew-sitter, which for their own good can only be managed by a holy priest, I mean elder, who is the exclusive teacher and actor in front of them on the stage of the church. If you can see the world as all who lived in 1375 saw it in their day, you can understand that your skepticism for his plans is no different from the skepticisms of, of uh, church leaders today. Why translate the Bible into a language almost nobody of any distinction, the 3%, considered a legitimate language for any person of gentle birth to even speak at all? unless you're talking to servants. Why translate the Bible into a language that nobody can read or even wants to speak if they have social class? The social class are the people who change the world, not those serfs and slaves. Why translate the Bible if it is, pos if it is impossible to handwrite enough copies for more than a small handful of illiterates, remember, they're the only ones who might read it, and they can't read, to possess one? Why translate the Bible for people who are incapable of grasping its simplest concept when they are painstakingly explained to them? Every priest who's preached in a church has seen the eyes of the faithful glaze over, the serfs who can't possibly grasp what they're saying. What could they possibly do with a conceptual world that is hopeless beyond them? Scripture opened them up to that? Nonsense. You know, it's kind of like this. If the whole world had Down syndrome, and were managed by an elite 3% of normal people who don't are not mentally impaired like that, who took care of everyone, wouldn't you be a fool to try and translate anything at all? If a Downs could be taught to read, and that's a huge if, how would it help him? So too the serf, the peasant of 1370. So too your estimation of the common Christian today. Surely the Holy Spirit can do no more to change us today than he could do to change the Christian serfs of 1350. Of course, today, you know that once the Bible was in, you know this today, you know that once the Bible was in translation, people would crave to be taught to read it. You know that in 60 years, Gutenberg would invent a device that would put copies of the Bible in everyone's hands, the printing press. You know that once people began to read and understand God's word, their whole understanding of who they are, were and what they could do changed. You know that the very structures of political, intellectual, and scientific world would be transformed by these people who only two or three or four generations earlier, with all honesty and no prejudice, but simple truth could be described as common, ignorant, unwashed, starving, rude, fifth, filthy, foul, vulgar, ugly, ignoble, superstitious, fools. Yes, you know this, but no one in Wycliffe's day knew this. They only knew back then of Wycliffe's impossibly dangerous scheme of Bible translation. They knew of their future as much as you know of your future. 
and they trusted God for their future as much as you trust God for yours. When you listen to the rest of, of what I had to say, will you too say with the Church of 1350, impossible, entertaining maybe, whimsically hopeful, yes, but impossible, impossible because of the destruction freedom carries with it. Such a vision of God's Word and God's Holy Spirit would permit every heresy to break down all lawful authorities and powers which hold the heretics back, the authorities in the church and in the state. It would, it would corrupt and destroy the very people who would be liberated or empowered by these ideas from God's Word. We need rulers to control us, elders who have authority and power, given to them by God himself, the divine right of kings. Haven't you read Romans 13? You see, what do you think about yourself, my friend, when you find yourself picking up the very same stones to throw and the same firewood they picked up to burn Wycliffe's vision? When you were presented with the idea that today, in your day, 2018, or whenever you hear this or read this, whenever you live, that your idea that the Holy Spirit and God's Word are not finished in the freedom and transformation and the life they bring for the life of the world for whom Christ died. One bedrock fundamental of Wycliffe's day and of our day, which you articulate with your skepticism, is that people cannot change and get better as a whole. You are convinced that even if the Holy Spirit himself were to indwell them, even if the Word of God is in their hands and dwells richly in their heart, even if someone were to come back from the dead and tell them, even so, transformational change of themselves and the earth through them by the power of the Holy Spirit and the law of God written on their hearts is impossible. Not even God can do it. We are what we are. In the end, wherever you, where, wherever you find yourself in history, any period of history, you will, along with everyone else in that age, believe that people are what you experience them to be, and they will never be capable of accomplishing or living or becoming or achieving more or less than the people of that age imagine as possible, given what we all know are limits to be. And of course, God must be just as limited as we are. And so, my friend, Wycliffe, in answer to these same questions that you have raised for me, was convinced that the serf, the ignorant, the boorish, short-lived plowboy with God's word in his heart could be transformed into someone capable of self-government, wisdom, and entrusted with the power of government. That is someone who did not need the strong hand of the lord of the manor, and even the King of England, to keep him under strict control as if they were his true father, as Machiavelli urged. Controlling them for his and everyone's own good, of course. Above all, Wycliffe believed that such a plowboy would need no priest to control him by mediating the grace of God on his behalf for him. That plowboy would in time have no need to call any man father or rabbi or teacher, for he would be taught by God. Burn him, who would think such a thing, or crucify him. He wrote for the first time in human history a political statement of something that had only been written before by Moses, Jeremiah, Joel, Peter, and the author of the book of Hebrews. And, of course, Jesus Christ, both throughout his ministry and in the upper room at the end of his earthly ministry. 
When Moses was confronted by men who were prophesying apart from his control and direction, his key men urged him to make them stop, to recognize the potential for division and riot if men are permitted to be a source of God's word apart from the control of the church or state, or Moses, who was the church and state, to which Moses replied, Are, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all God's people were prophets. Would that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. He saw the work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God in the heart and mouth of every man and woman and child to be the necessary ingredient of the kingdom of God on earth, not a threat to it. The Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh is only a threat to the Simon the sorcerers of this world, that is, to those who fancied themselves as the elite ones who control God's kingdom by controlling his word and his spirit. Peter, give me what it takes so that I can lay hands on people and they too can receive the Holy Spirit. Those are the words of ordination in the church today and have been since the organizers took over from the apostles. When Jeremiah envisioned that the new covenant person, what the new covenant person would look like, he said, In that day no one will need anyone to teach him, know the Lord, for they shall all know them from the least of them to the greatest. When Joel foresaw the Holy Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh as the sign of the last day's fulfillment of God's peeper, peep peeper, people, and Peter said on Pentecost, this which you see is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This is it, folks. This is the last days. These are the last days spoken of by the prophet Joel. The writer of Hebrews quoted Jeremiah at length beyond this small expert excerpt and said that that is the day this that this is the day Jeremiah spoke of, the coming of Christ as a Sabbath the world awaited. These are the Christians, the garden variety everyday Christians who fulfilled that word, who were in that upper room, who got baptized in the Holy Spirit in, in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. As Paul said, they have no need of a pedagogue, a teacher for children. They are adults capable of self-government because the law has been put in their hearts, which have been turned from stone to flesh, as Jeremiah and Ezekiel said they would be when, when Messiah was revealed. The purpose of elders, then, is not to be a pedagogical, uh, external, disciplinary, or protective force, but like Jesus, a teacher, a mentor, a discipler, not a discipliner, of mature adults. Another 1,300 years later, after Jesus, that is, Wycliffe stated the political possibility of a people who had direct access to God's word in their own language hidden in their own, own, own hearts, picking up the words of these prophetic spokesmen of what the kingdom of God was going to be like, transforming their lives, filled with God's Holy Spirit, making them a people as a body politic, to sufficiently self-governed by God's law in their hearts so as to make possible, and now I'm quoting Wycliffe in his introduction to his Bible, to make possible a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Yes, it was Wycliffe who said that in his introduction to his translation of the Bible into English. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln he was quoting. It wasn't one of the founding fathers of America they were quoting. Wycliffe said that not at a time where there was already a strong sense of how we could do this. He said this is a time in which this was pure cock and bull uh, 
uh, cock and bull, just throw it, put it out about it. Utopianism, that's the word I'm looking for. He saw the world transforming possibility of the Holy Spirit speaking through the word to each believer who took the name of Christ, none in need of intermediaries between them and God to control their lives from the least of them to the greatest, either in the government of the church or in time of the state as well. If you can see the world as Wycliffe saw his, it will help you understand that what you feel in your bones about the possibility of fundamental change is false, even as what his critics felt in their bones about the danger of what he proposed was utterly false. What you think of as the limits of honesty, morality, truth, and action of the world as you know it is no more the limit of what God will do with our world than it was God's limit in 1370. Our current world is not the limit of the best we can hope that God wants to make of us. Now, now you may think that the current mode of governance in the church and the state is necessary to control humankind as you know them to be, as you know yourself to be, as they always have been. That it is unalterably necessary to protect freedom, truth, and justice, and to prevent disaster for all of us. We need the state. We need its regulations. We need its police. We need its courts. We need its jails. We need the church, we need the elders, we need, we, we, we need them to control the, the sacred acts that take place in church. We need these things. God forbid that we just have some, the least among us doing them. Who wants to listen to that guy preach? But that was not what Wycliffe thought in the 1370s. And it's not what you should think in whatever year you read these words or listen to the, what I'm saying from now to the end of time itself. In reality, what must be learned from Wycliffe is that government is the solution to a problem. Government, wherever found, will only be as heavy-handed as people think it needs to be based on their level of maturity or immaturity, based on the level of their ability to freely govern their own affairs, that is. The mature govern their own affairs. They don't live forever in their house with mommy and daddy governing them. In Wycliffe's day, the level of people's ethical knowledge and judgment was such that it seemed necessary to have all of that heavy-handed central authority uh, to maintain order, defend freedom such as it was. It made common sense that there must be an, an empowered elite society of nobles and aristocracy, priests. The nobles were authentic by, authenticated by royal blood, equipped to run everything for everyone's good. In the church, so the structure was a little bit different, the same elitist idea of a hierarchy of priests authenticated not by royal blood, but by their relationship to the Pope, which just means father, by relationship to their fa the father of the church as the source of truth, authority, and peace for society was the bedrock assumption of society itself. You need these authorities in church and state. After the Reformation, after Wycliffe's translation project, magnified by a thousand translators, printed into a million books, after these things took hold, surprise, people did change. Their level of personal ethics, their judgment matured. They could be involved directly in the government of the church and state without descending into a mob. They threw off the now unnecessary bondage <clears throat> of the fatherhood of the priests and the aristocrats. The basic lot of every member of society improved how they were governed externally changed as, a, as radically as their hearts of stone changed to hearts of flesh internally, and they became governed by God's law. Don't misunderstand. Government is not an artificial construct 
that you can change like clothes if you want. Let's just design a better form of government. The corporate government of the church or state is always based on the general consensus of how people think they work together best. That is how much freedom they should have before their liberty becomes a threat both to them and to those in power. The more authority and power you think you need controlling your life, quite frankly, the more of a child you think you are. I'm not calling you immature, my friend. You are. You're the one who says we, know, we still need our great white father in Washington to take care of us. We still need our great white policemen to come and protect us. We still need our great white elders to come and be our elders over us to be sure that sin doesn't take over in the church. It doesn't matter that throughout 2,000 years, 99% of all heresy started among the teaching elders and priests of the church of Jesus Christ. We still look to them to protect us. Government is, and, and so if you think you need that, that authority in your life, that power to govern you, then what you are saying is, I am still a child, and I get that. It's okay. A child's place is in the home with a strong father. And, truth be told, you're living in a better home than it was 500 years ago. Because we have elders and you take part, their checks and balances. This is a better system. But please don't say the Holy Spirit can only do this. He can only do what me and my childishness is limited to right now. Government is what humankind from creation was wired to exercise, first in themselves and then with each other. It is an inescapable solution to the problem of living together. There is no such thing as a non-governing human being or an organizationless or leaderless society. If you think for a minute that what I'm talking about here is anarchy, that's not it. It's a straw man. Therefore, successful exercise of our humanity requires that must peop enough people must understand the problems posed by life and society in sufficiently similar terms and to understand the solution, the solution their specific government as a reasonable solution that is generally agreeable to enough people to sustain it and reasonable to force onto those who do not willingly submit to it. Changing that gut sense of how things work to protect and enable all of us to be free is not an idle task for an afternoon or some theoretician just to come up with a new blueprint. You see, only if it is possible to pe for people to change from the heart internally will it be possible and necessary for their external governments to change with them. This is true regardless of who holds the seats of power in that government or how it is structured or who wants to change. If in the New Covenant the priesthood has changed from a hierarchy of specialist elites set apart as intermediaries, priests between God and man, then when that priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change in the form of government also reflecting the level of freedom a people can responsibly manage based on their unmediated internal self-government according to the law of God. This is precisely the horror that the Pharisees warned of when they got wind of what Jesus wanted to do. When they realized what he was up to, call no man rabbi, call no man rabbi, the Romans are going to come and take away our place. It's the horror that the Roman Catholic Church warned the world of concerning Wycliffe. You must keep God's word out of the hands of the commoners lest they discover that they and none other are the only priests spoken of in the New Covenant. 
By the way, that's a fact. And they dreaded it. You must keep it out of their hands lest they attempt through egalitarian chaos to impose the rule of the mob, lest they vainly imagine themselves to be capable of freedom, self-control, discipline under God's law, lest they introduce every heresy known to man. Uh, aside from the fact that all those heresies came from you guys, the elite leadership of the church, we must keep it out of their hands lest society itself break down in all morality with it. You have heard these arguments. Many of you have made them yourselves against the idea that the Holy Spirit still has transforming work to do. This is the problem created in our social and political world when people believe that in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God himself dwells richly in word and truth in each common Christian, who to us today seems so similar to the unchangeable plowboy of Wycliffe's day, so desperately in need of a governor to tell him when, where and how to know the Lord. Ezekiel asks the same question we ask. Can these bones be made alive with merely the word of God and the breath of the Holy Spirit? Can these bones in Ezekiel's day, in Jesus' day, in Wycliffe's day, in our day? And if those bones are made alive, will they be nothing more than a zombie apocalypse? Or is God, with his prophetic word and spirit, creating new possibilities along with these new people he is bringing to life, continuing the transformation of heart. If humankind were static, if there were no end goal, no plan of God for the earth, to which we journey as God's people from creation to the end of time. And by the way, you hear people say, I'm just, just a pilgrim passing through. Yes, indeed you are, but you're a pilgrim who's going somewhere, and you're a part of a pilgrimage throughout all history, and it's a history that's going somewhere. Now, in your short time, you may not make it to the somewhere that the world is going by God's plan, but you're not a pilgrim who's passing through a world that's just going to be destroyed. No, you're a pilgrim passing through a world that you are going to transform. God's people from creation to the end of time is that pilgrimage. If what we are today, both good and the bad, is all we will ever will be, then why wasn't that true of Abraham's day, of David's day, of Jesus' day and the apostles, of, of the church fathers, the pre-Nicene fathers, of that early church which took over and converted Europe and the known world? Why isn't that true of the high Middle Ages? Why isn't that true of the, of, of the church of, of Wycliffe's day? Why do you think today we've gone about as far as we can go? You know that song from, from Oklahoma? Everything's up to date in Kansas City. They've gone about as far as they can go. You can turn the radiator on whenever you want some heat. Every house is completely furnished. Every house is all complete. Oh, everything's up to date in Kansas City. That song articulates the theology. By the way, it's for Kansas City back in about 1910, okay? Hey, they have radiators in their house, and they can turn them on and get heat just any time they want. That's pretty radical if you spent most of your time in a sod hut. And that's basically our theology today, and probably pretty much always has been, is that we've gone about as far as we can go. We can't expect anything more. Uh... As much as can be expected of human fruitfulness and multiplication and of the redemption of Christ and the transformation of the Holy Spirit, uh, if that's true, then Jesus would be absurd to command that human, 
that, that government, as humankind has always known it, government by the greatest among us, albeit with checks and balances, is not the way he wants his people to govern themselves. The presupposition of this book and of this talk is, by the way, there's a whole book associated. This is like chapter three or something. Maybe it's chapter one. I'm not sure. The presupposition of this book is not that we can today describe exactly what God has in mind any more than Wycliffe could. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. What exactly is that? Or how he wants us to organize ourselves. Would that all God's people had the Holy Spirit, is what Moses prayed. He, would, he didn't know what that would look like. It is not faith in some egalitarian vision which denies either the differences between people and genders or even a denial of the distinctives which call for leadership and submission to leadership. None of that's going out the window. The presupposition of this book is not that all other forms of government are mistaken or evil or compromises of God's word. No, most of them throughout history have been the best we can do, just as the one we're under now. In fact, so far as it from these things, even if every word of this book, what I've just been saying is true, that would not mean that you or I have grown sufficiently in grace, sufficiently to live in such a church as Christ envisioned, or such a freedom as Christ holds out by his Spirit, any more than the Israelites had grown sufficiently in grace to inherit the promised land when they sent their spies into it, though they saw its goodness with their own eyes from the desert. It looked terribly dangerous to them. So they circled Mount Sinai for another 40 years. The presupposition of this book is that, the, is that the promised land is here. It is the promise that growth and the maturity of grace and truth is possible. Where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And where His Word dwells richly, that is the transformation in how we govern ourselves, and it will be inevitable. So rather than fearing it, just because we perhaps can't step into it, doesn't mean that we can't start thinking and praying in terms of what God's Word says, Praying, oh God, would that we as a people would grow up. Oh God, would that the elders who rule in the church quit thinking that, that, that they have to be tinkering with all the trials and the, the, that it's their job to control everybody, but let them devote themselves to being an example to the flock, to discipling them, not to beating on them. The presupposition of this book is that as God's people grow in grace, that what his people did in the upper room and then with the disciples in that first generation, is actually possible to be normal. We're not inventing something. It's not some novel doctrine if we try to be faithful to their vision. It is the ancient doctrine. It is the church since the apostles who have invented the alternative to the rule of the Holy Spirit. We will start organizations and then declare that the Holy Spirit is among us. Wickless government of the people, by the people, for the people, is more than just a hope of representative government, of the Constitution of the United States, or a Presbyterian Book of Church order. Whether the rule of elders we elect, or the rule of congressmen and presidents we elect, it would be ridiculous to think that Wycliffe or Scripture prophesied a specific form of constitutional government. It is rather a visionary statement of what Jesus commanded in the upper room on the night he was betrayed. What Jesus fulfilled on the cross when he transformed us into new creatures and gave us hearts of flesh, which the prophets foresaw and said, that's going to be the mark of the new covenant church. <clears throat> that upper room, you might say, is last normal night on earth as they once knew it before the dawning of the Sabbath. 
The presupposition of this book is that Jesus opened the door in that upper room to the possibility of organization, a corporate government, on a foundation other than finding the greatest among you and then granting them the power to force everyone to submit to them, of the, all who are non-rulers, for a period of time or life. These words in the context of the rest of Scripture show that he did not prescribe a particular form of government that night. Rather, he commanded that we seek a form of government that is utterly founded on and consistent with self-government under his spirit and his word written on our hearts guiding the individual's life. This kingdom from the heart is to be the basis of further corporate union and government, church or state or family. This is why he turned government from the greatest among you into a government of the least among you. It's why he said, hey, who runs the house? The guy sitting at the table at meat? I'm among you as a servant. Implication, that's the only way I want you to govern. Oh, you say he wasn't talking about government. He was talking about uh, the character of the leader. No, he wasn't. He had just told them he was going to be betrayed and killed. Then they broke out into an argument. And if you go back and look, almost all the who's the greatest discussions were his disciples being told Jesus is going to die. And they're saying, how do, we, how do we continue the ministry of Jesus Christ, Inc.? Is it I? Am I the greatest? It wasn't a beauty pageant of women saying who's the most beautiful. It was a bunch of men realistically saying who's going to run this flying banana? Who's going to represent Jesus Christ? Who's the greatest among us? And Jesus every time addressed that he would not be run by the greatest among you. He'd be run by the least among you, which if you reflect for a moment is one of the keynotes of Jesus' entire ministry. His answer to John the Baptist's skepticism. Go read it. His answer to the Pharisees' elitism. Go read it. His central theme in the Sermon on the Mount. His words on who should govern whenever the disciples asked who was greatest, who would rule when he had gone, his last words on government, particularly in the upper room. He was not addressing the character of the government. He was cutting his governors off from the false uh, hope of externally imposed discipline of accomplishing anything, of, of, of controlling the spiritual life of his congregation. He would not leave them powerless, he promised. He would merely take, an, take away the organizational illusion of power and grant to them the true world-changing power of the Holy Spirit poured out on even the least esteemed among them who would be equipped to rule angel, to, to, to judge angels, to fill them as fully as the greatest, to persuade and convince based on the integrity of life and word and the power and the testimony of the Holy Spirit speaking through the word alone. Peter, speaking to Ananias, did not strike him dead. The Holy Spirit did. Paul, defending the table, didn't come in and prevent drunks from, from defiling the table of the Lord. He simply said, if you'll pardon my sarcasm, go ahead and defile the table of the Lord. Why do you think many are sick and some have died? What, has God changed and now all of a sudden he can't take care of his table? He needs you elders to be distracted from the holy call, to be that discipling example day in and day out to God's people. And now he needs you to be the judges in Israel, sitting at the, uh, in, in thrones to judge the twelve tribes. That's what he has for you? God's Holy Spirit can't do it anymore? Jesus did this because he foresaw that someday the burden of government, of freedom itself, the weight of glory would be the daily responsibility of every individual, 
not the responsibility of an elite few in a mediatorial role as, in, as representatives in place of God's people to stand between them and God at the doorway of the church deciding who could come in and who had to leave. There is only one God and one mediator. Society, the church, the world can only be governed as freely as the people are themselves personally able to govern themselves freely. And there's no freedom outside of the government of God's law. You want to know why God's law has never one time in history ever been successfully the structuring principle of a, of a secular government, or really even a church, to be quite frank and honest? It's because it was never designed to be something that's applied from the top down. It doesn't work that way. Yes, during the stopgap between the fall and the coming of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, which we pick up and go back to the beginning. From the beginning it was not so, but go back to the beginning, he comes back to that. <clears throat> From that point on, the law of God is written on our hearts, and that's how God's law is intended to govern the world. It won't work any other way. It will simply work as a stopgap, the best we can do. His command was not to adopt this or that form of external government which will save you which is why there is literally nothing even vaguely like a book of church order in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. There's nothing like a discussion of forms of government, theoretical stuff. It was to focus the leadership in the church not on controlling people externally, but on maturing people to control themselves internally from the heart according to God's word. Like Paul said, so that the teaching gifts in the church, Ephesians 4, would enable the people of the church, from the least of them to the greatest, to grow up in a spiritual maturity and not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, according to God's word. Like Wycliffe, he, Jesus knew that if his church and his leaders could do this and not be distracted in time, the government of the state would follow in an increasing unfolding of freedom consistent with God's law. We have been on a 2,000-year sidetrack by ignoring his words that night, thinking the task of government is to control and protect incompetent minors, rather than to equip and enable and transform mature people to govern, to control, and to protect themselves from every wind of doctrine, from heartfelt obedience to his word written on their heart. It's time we recognize and do what it takes for us to change this trajectory which we have been on for 2,000 years, and find true liberty, true justice, true freedom in the law of God as the Holy Spirit writes it in our hearts and transforms us to live it. Come, turn that page. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth.
the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.